And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on March 19th, 2021. Phil Forsyth currently serves as co-executive director of the Philadelphia Orchard Project, commonly known as POP, a nonprofit that plants and supports community orchards in the city of Philadelphia. Phil has led POP's orchard design and development since its first plantings in 2007. In his role, he works with POP's board and staff to design and plant orchards, coordinate volunteers, and lead educational programs. Phil has 18 years of experience in urban farming, gardening, and landscaping, and holds a BS in horticulture and landscape design from Colorado State University. In 2017, Phil received the first ever Mary Seton Corby Award for Public Horticulture from the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Phil. We're delighted that you can join us today. We hope that you can give us some background about the Philly Orchard Project. I know globally people, not everybody in the world knows about the Philly Orchard Project, but I I think it's a good model for other cities to have. And uh, perhaps you can kind of sketch out what that model is. Sure. Glad to be here. Yeah. So the Philadelphia Orchard Project is a nonprofit that plants and supports community orchards here in Philadelphia. Um, And essentially our model is to partner with community groups in neighborhoods across the city um, and provide them support in designing, planting, and then caring for uh, orchard plantings uh, of of fruit trees, berry bushes, fruiting vines, perennial uh, herbs and flowers, basically any sort of perennial planting uh, that contributes to community food security. And how did the idea come about? It was a vision of uh, a man named Paul Glover, who in 2006 came up with this notion. And basically the vision was to convert some of the abundant vacant land in Philadelphia into productive growing space to feed communities in need in the city. So addressing both the twin problems of abundant vacant land in the city and and a, a vast need for better access to fresh food. And to do so, the sort of the novel thing was to do so with perennial crops instead of annual vegetables. I I know that POP has a really wonderful reputation. I know that I've recommended students coming to do volunteer work for your organization when I was working at Temple. And they really enjoyed and learned a lot from from hands-on experience. And I think that more people need that in the educational process. And can you talk a little bit about that hands-on experience that people get when they are just learning horticulture or just learning about trees or just learning about working within the context of a community um, setting? Yeah, and I really think that's one of the most important things we do is reconnecting or connecting city residents uh, to their food system and to nature uh, within the city itself. 
So providing opportunities within each neighborhood in the city to get that hands-on experience of you know planting a tree, but also for, for a lot of city residents for the first time, picking a fruit from a tree or a berry from a bush or a, a grape from a vine is a novel and often powerful experience that really makes a connection that, that doesn't otherwise happen. Purchasing the same fruit, for example, from a store uh, doesn't turn on the light bulbs in the same way. So yeah, I think that's that's a really valuable thing. And you know, we work with all kinds of partner groups in the city uh, with a wide range of you know backgrounds. Um, some are horticultural organizations that, that have a lot of planting experience, but many are not. Many are know churches or schools and and it's and it's a pretty new thing so getting people's hands in the dirt and learning horticultural skills for the first time is is a big part of what we do well can you talk about when you think about you know something that is you would regard as your most successful project in terms of community buy-in and also the actual production of the fruit you know, where you can really go during uh, fruit season and take a guest over there and see an apple tree. You have a favorite project like that? Well, it's uh, if you're asking me to pick like a favorite orchard of our 65 partner sites, yeah. that's that's uh, challenging to do. But yeah, there's many, many partnerships where we're really proud of. My mind goes to uh, Bartram's Garden, for example. Sankofa Community Farm is our, our partner there, and uh, it's one of our larger community orchards in the city. At a prominent horticultural site, you know, in southwest Philly, in a neighborhood that needs better access to fresh foods. And, and they just have an amazing program there, you know, that goes way beyond the food that's grown. But really engaging youth in in food justice issues. So we're really proud of that partnership for one example. But there's many others other than last year with the pandemic, harvest festivals for I think it was uh, 11 years in a row with the East Park Revitalization Alliance in Strawberry Mansion neighborhood of North Philly. And so that those have been great events for engaging the neighborhood and coming out to see the orchards and see what's in season and get that, again, that experience of picking food from a tree sure, and celebrating together, pressing fresh cider and, and all kinds of fun things like that. Yeah, I was going to ask, so are the apples doing okay as we kind of swerve into the horticultural end of this conversation? Well, I, I'd love to talk about what it is we plant because, you know, apples are the most challenging fruit to grow in this climate. And we see very little success with them in Philadelphia. When we work with our partners on designing orchards, we push them away from apples and towards fruits that are going to be easier to produce. We live in a, a very humid climate with lots of pest and disease challenges. And apples, unless you're doing a complicated spray regimen, organic or not, it's very difficult to grow. And, and there's, you know, essentially organic apple production in this region is, is basically nil on a commercial scale. And backyard growers are going to have little success as well without, you know, really spending a lot of time on pest and disease management, which is beyond the capacity of most of our, our partner yeah. organization. And I've seen that as well. So tell us about your successes. I'm ready. Yeah, so we have lots of successes, fruits we, we really love love to grow and see great production with. Uh, some of our favorites uh, it tend to be the unusual fruits, uh, figs, persimmons, pawpaws, juneberries, mulberries. Uh, and then among the common fruits, our, our two favorites are our Asian pears we've had great success with and pie cherries or sour cherries have really done well. 
and you know the, we do get some good production on plums from some trees and cherries on in some years depending on the weather and but yeah we really love our unusual fruits have you seen any problem with black knot with your sour cherries um not very much uh we've seen it in a couple orchards over 15 years so it's not not a big problem we've we've seen you know a little bit of black knot on on some plums and a little bit on cherries but not one of our major disease problems. That's interesting because where I live, there's all the trees around here have black knot. Yeah, I'm seeing a rise in black knot myself. Yeah, black knot can be. And but the problem is a lot of people don't recognize them when they see the disease and they leave the trees languish on their property and then it becomes a source for spreading the disease further, which is the sad part about it. A lot of people don't know about these things. Right. Yeah, brown rot is, is the probably the thing we lose the most fruit to each year. So all of the stone fruits get it. Um, and, you know, in a bad year, we're losing 50% or more of the crop to brown rot. Um, so that's one of our big challenges. And we, we spent the last year focusing on, on educating partners on some of the ways they can, can reduce it. And then in terms of uh, pests, actually, oriental fruit moth has been the biggest challenge with us for us in recent years. Another one that affects stone fruit. So another one we, we're you know exploring different ways to to mitigate. And then on the apples and pears, I'd probably say fire blight has been the biggest challenge. Palm curculio for an insect. Yeah, just so many different challenges with them. But, yeah. Yeah. So when you set out to do your planting, do you do a great diversity so that you're not planting a lot of one plant so that you don't have this monoculture effect? that might contribute to an increase in disease problems? Right, yeah. So we plant very diverse orchards. You know, we, we really think of educational value as, as important as the, as the fruit production. So teaching people about different types of fruits they can grow. So each orchard tends to be very diverse. We're also not planting commercial orchards. So, it, you know, having a diversity of fruits that have fruit in different seasons is, is more appealing than all of one tree type for, you know, a short, period of harvest. But, you know, our process involves getting input from our partner groups on what they'd like to see. And then often a process of educating about, you know, what the other options are, what are going to be more easy to grow options than, than, you know, the standard request. So we'd love peaches and apples and blueberries. So yeah, the end result is usually a combination of some of the common fruits and more unusual fruits. And yeah, I often, I'll call it the Noah's Ark style of orchard planting, where we'll have two of each type of tree, so in some cases needed for cross-pollination. But yeah, trying to include as much as possible. Do you do apricots at all? We do plant apricots, and there's good years and bad years. So about half the time, we get zero crop because they're so early bloom, they get hit by a late frost. So they're unreliable, but they've been actually pretty good producers in the years that they do set a crop. Yeah, I used to have apricot trees, and boy, they always produced really well. But, you know, if you're in a more protected area, too, if you're more exposed, you have problems with that. Do you ever grow medlar apples at all? Medlars, yeah. We've planted a number across the city. Yeah, they're more of a curiosity than a big food producer, but it's an interesting story and a kind of a lost lost crop. Yeah, we've planted them at mostly at historic sites to uh, bring back that history of a medieval fruit. And a uh, little challenging to get the harvest right, but I've, I've had some really tasty medlars over the years. And a beautiful tree, definitely a beautiful tree. The flowers look like 
old-fashioned single roses and yeah what genus is that i i've got to play dumb here and tell everyone i don't know what a medlar is yeah the botanical name is mespolis germanica uh, but they're closely related to pears and apples they're in the family so it's like an old school fruit then yeah it's an old medieval european fruit and uh yeah it's like a little ugly brown apple i guess maybe as the description but uh -huh. um they're they're known for being ugly fruits okay um that 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 ripen very last fruit of the season to ripen often in december or we've even picked them in january uh and ripen off the tree like a pear i had heard that they were an important crop for making alcohol for medicinal purposes hmm. They were actually always waited until after the first frost and then collected yeah. and then made into a, a uh, fermented beverage. A lot of times it comes back to fermented beverages. Right. <laughs> yeah, and not a focus of our program, although one of our orchards, Woodford Mansion, is going to be planting some cider apples this year uh, in their orchard. Yeah, obviously, you know, as a focus on food production, we're, we're not focused on on alcohol opportunities with them. But, but there is so much interesting history with that. I did hear that there's a cidery opening opening in Germantown. Yes, yes. That's exciting news too. The idea of planting more fruit trees, edible shrubs and the like, do you see that as a, not only as a trend, but as a movement to get people more conscious of the importance of knowing where food comes from? and that that education needs to go right down drill right down to the elementary school level yeah i mean i i, I believe this is uh you know fundamental knowledge that's been lost biologically humans evolved with fruit trees and uh, i think there's a great connection there that should be restored and yeah i mean i i and i believe urban orchards should be part of the permanent fabric of cities traditionally cities have regarded urban agriculture in general is temporary land use until something else can be built or developed, generates more tax revenue. But you can look at a wide range of, of benefits from these spaces. And yeah, I, I think it's really important part of, of life for all humans. And, and so it's not just for rural communities, also for, for city dwellers to be able to know what they can grow in, in their yards, in their as street trees and in their public spaces. These can all be food producing spaces with fruit trees, nut trees and other things. I remember when I lived in England that when you go into London, there are some pocket parks that had quite a number of uh, fruit trees espaliered against the, the walls in, in these little park pocket parks. We were told that those were places for people that needed food that they could go pick. And, you know, that kind of reminds me of, of your organization where know if there's a need and there's like we've seen with COVID it only exacerbates the importance of uh, an organization like like POP. Yeah and we, we do have a, a gleaning program as well you know we are part of a, a global movement of urban orcharding including you know in, in England as well but across the country and a lot of those programs are really focused on gleaning so picking fruit that's already there in the cities and especially on the West Coast there, the cities are newer and there's actually pockets of old orchards within the cities and a lot more fruit trees planted in yards. So we kind of had to start from scratch. There wasn't much in the way of fruit trees left in Philadelphia. Uh, so we're sort of reestablishing them. 
but we're also, you know, we have programs where we're teaching people about abundant fruits already in the city that are already commonly planted. So like June berries are one of our favorite or service berries. They're planted all over the city as street trees, park trees, they're this abundant blueberry-like fruit. So we have pro- our Juneberry Joy Week every year where we go out and pick them in neighborhoods across the city and introduce people to the abundance already in their neighborhood. doesn't need to be planted. It's already there. We do the same thing with mulberries and ginkgo nuts and black walnuts and other herbaceous plants as well. Japanese knotweed is a invasive that's abundant but actually delicious to eat. As a stir fry, or how do you prepare? Yeah, there's a lot of things, different things you can do with it. It's actually closely related to rhubarb, and you know, I've made similar dishes, um, made pies out of it, and and fruit bars, and, and things like that. So you're using like the young shoots? Yeah, you use the 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 sort of the tips of the stalks, and you can use the thicker stalks, but you have to peel them. But I generally just take the ends and and, and cook those up. I got you. Do you happen to know the Latin on that one? Uh, Fallopia japonica, I believe. <laughs> Never took Latin, but... Okay, uh, fantastic. Thank you. And ID courses in, in college, and uh, I don't know. The words are fun to say. <laughs> Bill, City of Philadelphia, are they an authentic partner? Do you have people in, the, in government that got your back? Because I uh, just running errands the past couple of days happened to crisscross from Port Richmond down through Northern Liberties. And then this morning, uh, again, cutting through West Philly at the base of Lancaster Avenue and saw that monolithic, I'm assuming it's housing. I mean, the city's growing and getting denser. And, you know, I have a history with community gardens from the early 80s with the Horticulture Society. I know so many of those gardens aren't there anymore. And uh, what's it looking like? Uh, I would say there's good and bad. You know, Philadelphia is a pretty progressive government in general, and there have been some great developments in recent years. There is a Farm Philly Division of Parks and Rec that's working on this, which is very new. And they are in process of a new urban ag plan for Philadelphia, which is this would be the largest city in the country to have such a plan. And Tree Philly has been a partner to us as well, the, the division of, of Parks and Rec that, that is focused on tree planting. So there are great parts of city government that we've connected with and have been supportive. You know, our first orchards back in 2008, we got approval from Fairmount Park to plant an orchard on, on city property, which was a big step for us. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely big challenges to, you know, development is, you know, in general, one of the biggest challenges the city's dealing with right now. Sometimes it feels like the entire city is under development at the same time, but there have been so many gardens and some orchards lost to development. And the city did pass the land bank legislation back in 2013, believe it or not. It's been quite a while, but that was a very exciting step. But it's been somewhat disappointing. Like it's not working as people had hoped it would. It needs more transparency, it needs more investment. And yeah, so so there's still big challenges, but we are a mecca for urban ag. I'm proud of what the city's doing and, and that, you know, there are parts of government that have been really supportive. I know that you recently acquired a home at the Woodlands. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because we had Rob and Rick on our show. Oh, great. And she said that you're doing wonderful, wonderful things at the cemetery. Yeah, so here here we are. What is this, our 13th? 14th year 
we just last year established our own headquarters for the first time. So we've always just worked in support of community groups in establishing orchards. But for the very first time, we have our own orchard, uh, which we call the Pop Learning Orchard at the Woodlands. And it's been a great partnership that's growing year by year. So last year, we we leased about an acre of land from the Woodlands in West Philadelphia and planted, a, I think we have a total of 90 fruit and nut trees planted at this point and 150 at least berry bushes and fruiting vines there. With the pandemic, we used all that nice growing space in between the young trees to, to grow vegetables for emergency food distribution and distributed over 1,400 pounds from there last year. And that's just the, the beginning. Last fall, we moved our edible plant nursery there and we have expanded space. So we'll be able to grow more of our own plants and distribute them to partners and the general public. And we have plans for high tunnels and a climate battery greenhouse on site as well. Next week, we're going to start building a solar shed. So it, we it's all off grid. We'll be running our irrigation and our high tunnels uh, on uh, solar electricity. So a lot of exciting things happening over there. That's wonderful. And and she was speaking very highly of you, by the way. They love you as a partner, which is always so nice. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really been a, a wonderful partnership. And, and Robin and Jessica and the team are great, great to work with. And, and that's exactly what you need. From one of our, several of our guests have talked about tree shortages within the context of being able to get trees. And of course, this is the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, so we're concerned that there always be a source of trees for people who want to plant them and people who need to plant them. Um, can you give us any idea whether there's any other larger trees in your future that may be like oaks that produce acorns that are edible? Have you thought about that? Yeah, and yeah, I mean, we've we've, again, done workshops, harvest days with, with acorns and walnuts and things like that. But, you know, in terms of planting them, most of our city orchards are really too small for large nut trees. You know, we've done them in a few larger park settings, like at Woodford Mansion, for example, where we have some nice producing chestnuts and some walnuts that are getting close to production at this point. But for the most part, we, we just don't have the space for, for large nut trees. I thought maybe in your nursery you can grow them. But again, maybe something for the parks to think about. Yeah, I don't know if you've interviewed Max from Greenland Nursery. Yes. But yeah, I mean, that's his, really what he's been focusing on is a lot of that, the native, native plants, including a lot of nut-bearing ones for park spaces. You uh, buy from uh, Hassan up at uh, Tree Authority? Yeah, yeah, definitely my favorite local yeah. vendor of, of trees and other plants. So we have our own little edible plant nursery, as I mentioned, and we grow a lot of it from, from bare root plants. We've got, you know, a bunch coming in in the next couple of weeks that we'll be potting up. But yeah, when we're, we need something um, that we don't already have, then Hassan's my first, first call, definitely. I think he said that was it P.O.P. that bought out his persimmon supply? Are you guys planting persimmons? Well, he was already sold out this spring when I reached out, but I think we, we wiped him out last <laughs> fall. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting, you know, with the, the boom in people doing home growing with the pandemic, 
it's been harder to find certain plant materials this year. But yeah, I'm, I'm buying the last of his Asian pears this spring. And uh, oh, great. Yeah. yeah, fingers crossed that Asian pear will be uh, ubiquitous in a few more years. It, it really does seem to be the perfect. Yeah, yeah, we love them. When, when people ask you know, about planting an apple, we say, how about an Asian pear instead? It's a uh, similar shape, similar crunch, much, much easier to grow. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, can you walk us through the process that perhaps maybe some listeners out there would like to have an orchard within their community in the city of Philadelphia, even an idea to for those who live outside the city? What's the process that they would have to go through? What's what's that process that would help them get started and to work with your organization to get a orchard in their community? I think that's really important for people to understand. Yeah, so we have an application right on our website. Uh, if you go to the programs tab and look at the orchard planting page, uh, you can find our community partner application there. You do have to be within the city of Philadelphia for one. We are at full capacity working with 65 partners in the city and adding two to three new orchards per year. Basically what we're looking for in a partner is uh, long-term legal access to land Orchards, you know, fruit trees live for decades, sometimes centuries. We don't want to plant and then see a project, you know, the land developed a few years later. And I will say we, we're actually relaxing that requirement this year to specifically to support certain BIPOC-led uh, partners because there is a difference in access to land and resources uh, within different communities. And so we've, we've started to, to see that that's a, an important thing to, to think about. But that is, you know, a, a general expectation is, act, you know, it's got to be long-term access to land. And then the second, you know, criteria is, is the land suitable for planting? Does it have, you know, decent soil and, and sunlight, water access, all those basic things like that? A third one is a contribution to community food security is some of what's being grown, getting out to those in need of fresh foods. So that, that is a requirement. And then the last and, and probably most important is the group capacity. So uh, POP doesn't directly care for these orchard sites. They're cared by, for by our community partners with training and support from POP. But is the partner that's applying capable of caring for an orchard in the long term? So that's, you know, often that's the trickiest part to, to establish and, and, and conclude. But but also, you know, one of the key criteria for partnership is, is the group going to take care of it? Is it going to be successful? So. Uh, the other thing I wanted to find out is if there's, are there any companies out there listening right now, how they could actually financially support POP, even if they can't have an orchard or they, you know, they want to do a one-time donation or do a yearly donation what is the best way for them to make contact with you? Also, um, if they have volunteers from their, their own companies, if they um, offer volunteer hours for their employees, how can they reach out to you? I think that's an important component as well. Um, I know that um, when you have a program like this, it takes a lot of volunteers, but it also takes a lot of money. And to help support your organization, 
what can companies do? Sure. Yeah, we are uh, still a small nonprofit. You know, it's dependent on local foundation, local business support for most of what we do. Yeah, we welcome people to reach out that that believe in this mission and, and want to support us. Um, I am very proud to have added uh, a co to my title. I'm now co-executive director of the Orchard Project. Uh, and the person to reach out to would, would be my co-director, Kim Jordan. So Kim at phillyorchards.org. You can call us too, 215-724-1247. And we're happy to talk to you about how you can get involved and engaged and happy to have business support. We have an annual fundraising event or orchard celebration that businesses can sponsor um, and other ways to get involved. We do, once the pandemic is over, we'll have more bigger work days that you know, groups could get involved with potentially as well. Your website, and I, Hal, I'm not sure how deep you went into the website for, for uh, POP, but I was really impressed with the depth of knowledge that's on that site. I was, and I was as well. Yeah. yeah, the two of us are, we're always looking and researching things and um, Hal's digging around and I'm digging around on my end. And I think that's really important from um, our perspective that there is information on there for teachers, uh, really wonderful information for people who are in education, who are looking for maybe lesson plans or information on pollination. I loved all the information that I saw on pollination in there. I think you've done a wonderful job and it's a wonderful tribute to your organization that you're raising the level of awareness well thank you yeah we're, we're very proud of of that part of what we do you know i guess I, i've sort of thought of pop as the urban ag extension for orchards in philadelphia and uh, maybe filling a gap that was there um and so we've developed a lot of educational content over the years um a lot of different resources so you'll, you'll find our blog is you know filled with posts about various aspects of orchard care and all kinds of related topics as well. It's, it's searchable, easy to find what you're looking for. And we also have a resources page of, of downloadable materials. We're working on video content. We have our YouTube channel that we're starting to populate. And uh, so really proud of that. And um, yeah, in terms of you know school lesson plans, uh, we had an incredible education director with us for, for four years, uh, Alyssa, who left the organization last year, but she left us with this wonderful legacy of a whole series of really well-developed school-based orchard lesson plans mm. uh, that are ready to go. They're, they've been tied into, you know, school-based curriculum uh, standards. So, you know, teachers can figure out how they plug into what they're already doing. And uh, yeah, I really encourage people to check that out. And again, you can search, search, easily search both the blog and the resources page for, for things like that. How it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It is. One thing I've always thought was kind of cool, uh, and I suspect you've seen it as well, Phil, is on the corners of these vacant lots. I'm actually thinking about 18th and Glenwood. There's the big uh, community garden up there, but how peaches do a pretty nice job of self-seeding. Have you ever noticed that? Where yeah, yeah. You'll be looking along the railroad tracks and you'll see a tree laden with fruit and it's a peach. Right. Not, not terribly edible, but. Well, yeah, I mean, so peaches are, of all the common fruits, are the one that comes truest to seed. So um, 
it's the only one I would ever bother growing out from a seed. Uh, all the other ones are, I mean, peaches are also grafted and you want the best fruit, you want a grafted peach as well. But, but you actually, you know, if you plant seed from a good peach, most of the time you'll get at least a decent taste in a seedling peach. It isn't true of any of the other fruits at all. Uh, I, that's great information. I did not know that. I was going to say, I, I think you have some help from uh, uh, squirrels. Because uh, I know that my daughter lives in South Philly, and uh, she was telling me that every year, undoubtedly, that there's avocados planted in her garden by the local squirrels. <laughs> How many years are we away, Phil, before we get a nice avocado crop as, as things warm up? Tongue in cheek, but yeah. Well, let me talk about it this way. So we're getting ready <laughs> for the possibilities. So I mentioned we're, we're going to be building a high tunnel at the woodlands. Um, and we are going to be using that specifically to experiment with zone eight crops. So we're zone seven officially here in Philadelphia, but there's a lot of exciting things we can grow in zone eight, uh, including pomegranates and certain hardy citrus like yuzu, loquats, olives, you can grow in zone eight, uh, Chilean guavas. So I've been dreaming about this for a long time. You know, this will be a simple high tunnel just hoops and, and plastic, essentially. And we believe with that amount of protection, we can grow these things. Eventually, we may be able to grow them. Actually, we've already experimented with pomegranates outside with some, some success, actually. But then down the road, possibly the year after, we're hoping to build a climate battery greenhouse, which is a pretty cool thing. There's a three-fold farm in Mechanicsburg, PA, has built a few of these. Okay. And it's uh, it's essentially a, a high tunnel, but it's it's heated in a very interesting way. Rather than using fossil fuels to heat the greenhouse, uh, there's a series of buried pipes under the ground and fans that push the hot air during the day down to, into the ground, heat up the ground underneath. And then at night, those same little fans push that warmer air back up into the greenhouse. Hmm. And you can get basically two zones difference. We might be able to go zone oh, nine in Philadelphia. And it's using 10% of the energy use of a, a typical greenhouse. So again, we're hoping to run that on solar panels and be all off grid and, and be able to grow. You know, I haven't even started looking at what you can do with zone nine. But anyway, something he's, he's using them to grow figs out in central PA. So pretty, pretty amazing stuff. That's exciting. In this area, we've had pomegranates growing at um, Wick for a very long time. So I guess it might be just the microclimate that you're in when you're when you have a garden, the garden might not be the right microclimate for certain fruits where others might be better for. Yeah, we've been planting them in microclimates up against walls and things like that. But I think they may be misclassified as a zone eight plant, because as we've seen at WIC, they will survive. You know, it's not a particularly protected spot that that pomegranate is in. And they seem to be at least as hardy as figs in terms of winter. I have one in my backyard that I've had there for about 10 years. And it, the fig get more, gets more winter damage than the pomegranate does. I, I will say they're not very productive plants in our climate. I don't know if we don't have quite a long enough season. I think we've may, seen maybe six fruits on a pomegranate tree, the, the best we've ever seen. So they're not highly productive for us. Let's see if it's different in the high tunnel, but 
I think it's great that you, there are so many people doing so many experiments using um, alternative energy and coming up with new ideas on how to grow efficiently. Because, you know, Philadelphia used to be an epicenter for greenhouse production back in the 70s until we had the oil embargo. And that just kind of killed everything. And that's how the global economy kind of got started from the oil crisis. And, and you think about that and you really need to be more conscious of how we use energy and how we utilize resources uh, and use them to the fullest without damaging the environment. Yeah, I'm excited to, you know, there are quite a number of high tunnels in the city, but none devoted to growing fruit crops. So that, that's an exciting thing for me. And it actually brings alive some of the history of the woodlands as well. I don't know if you got into that talking to Robin Rick, but, you know, historically, William Hamilton, his landscape was known across the world for a famous set of greenhouses on site. Uh, that people would travel to visit that had, I Robin would remember the number, but 5,000 species collected from around the world growing in those greenhouses. So we're, you know, we're not trying to rebuild William Hamilton's greenhouse, but bringing back the spirit of that history. I think it was about 5,000, as she said, and, and the books that I've read about it and think that, it, you know, our, our legacy here in Philadelphia is yeah. horticulture. I mean, that's what that's what it is. And, and I think it's great that you are continuing that legacy through the Philadelphia Orchard Project. We always have a question to ask our guests and how do you... Fruit bearing or otherwise, Phil, is there a tree that really uh, speaks to you? Is there a tree that is kind of your uh, spirit tree that you kind of wink at when you are on the expressway or crossing the neighborhoods? Yeah, I, I would probably say the fig tree. I, I just love planting and growing them. They're, they're fascinating plants. I mean, the fruit fruit is delicious um, yeah. and reliably productive, and they're so easy to grow, no pest or disease problems whatsoever. And then, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fig fanatics out there, and I, at least close to being one of them. So many different varieties that, you know, families have, these histories have, they're, having brought them over from from Europe or the Middle East yeah. and, uh, you know, propagating them forward. And, uh, yeah, I think they're just fascinating. And uh, my, my new thing last year with figs was figuring out what to do with the, the little green figs at the end of the season that don't have time to ripen, which if you've grown figs right. before, everyone's familiar with this because they just continuously pr produce fruit throughout the season. But at the end of the year, in inevitably, there's still a crop on there that won't ripen. So um, yep. we found some recipes, traditional recipes for preserving green figs in, in syrup. I tried them out. I wasn't too pleased with the, the result the first time. It just tasted like sweet syrup to me. It wasn't super figgy. But I found recipes also for pickling them. So that's going to be what I try next year. I, I've made jams out of them. I've dried figs. I love them fresh and just a, a tree I, I really love. I believe the Italians have a fig liqueur too. Yeah, I'm sure. Again, back to what we can do with fruit in the end. There's always, there's always a beverage. Or do it with alcohol. I don't know. It's been a rough yeah. week. Um, I could go for a fig beverage about now. <laughs> yeah. When I moved to Philly in 1980, I remember um, walking the Italian market, never seen anything like it in the Midwest. But uh, right away you saw the little fig trees that uh, I guess the old timers were growing, uh, you know, and they'd sell them in coffee cans, you know, three quarter inch diameter and 
12 inches high. But somewhere in South Philly, I got to think there's a state champion mm. fig tree. I mean, be. some yeah. of those uh, back alley figs can get pretty monstrous. Yeah. yeah, the other cool thing about them is they're so easy to propagate. We just pounded up our, our root cuttings last week. And yeah, no no rooting hormone required. Just stick them in some, some perlite and 75% of the time they're going to bud and, and grow out. No, gra- no grafting involved. Yeah. That is very hopeful, happy information as we wind up our podcast with Phil Forsyth. Really wonderful having you on our show, Phil. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for all the wonderful information. We really do. And all the good work you guys are doing. Yes. Yeah, and let me just plug the website again, phillyorchards.org. We've got upcoming events there. Um, we still have one of our top four workshops, March 30th. and. Uh, an open house and plant sale at the Woodlands, May 22nd. But, you know, check out all the information there as well. Do you um, hire interns as well? Yeah, we, we have a, a couple, we, I think three interns currently. Okay, um, so you do have yeah. an internship program. Okay, thank you again. We really do appreciate it. Sure. Take care. Take care. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Bye. Thank you.